We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Good morning. We're going to turn again to the book of Haggai, and we will do a brief overview of where we have been and what we've talked about, and then uh, press on a little bit beyond where we were before. So we will remind ourselves that in Haggai chapter 1, the book opens by giving us a date. This book is somewhat unique in the detail of what it has given by way of date, the timeline. And we understand from the resources we've looked at that we can think about this first date given as August 15th, 520 B.C. Now that's a long time ago. And I've said it before and I'll say it again. And some people will say, well, that old, why, is it really relevant to us? It is. It also tells us there in that first verse who the prophet is addressing the message to. Or I call them the addressees. And we see that those are Zerubbabel, who is the governor of Judah, and Joshua, who is the high priest. This is quite interesting in view of the idea that you have the governmental leadership and the, shall we say, religious leadership being addressed directly in this first portion here. Now, in verses 2 through 4, we see that the prophet gets right to the point of what it is that has prompted this message from the Lord that he is bringing to them. And it has to do with the Lord's house, the Lord's house, or the temple, as it were. We, in some of our prior meetings, tried to put an emphasis on the importance of this temple so that we won't think of it as an ordinary building or just one of many potential structures, but that it had a central place. The whole idea was that God would meet with his people. And this whole idea is encompassed in what that temple meant. And so it's a big idea. It's not a small one. And so this temple is significant. Vastly so. And I think we have not done justice 
they're trying to emphasize the, the importance, not so much the temple, but the God of the temple. That's the main crux of the matter, but the temple there is that representation to help us to understand something about the God connected to that particular temple. And so we see that in those verses 2 through 4. And so what the people had done is that they, when they first returned from uh, their captivity in Babylon, they began to rebel. Provisions had been made for them. We talked about the decree of Cyrus and then Darius coming along behind and all the, everything, permission given for the temple to be built, provisions being made for the temple to be built and all that. And so we looked at about 538, I think it was, B.C., whatever that number was when they first returned. I think it was 36 to 38, somewhere in there. But anyway, they spent a couple of years on the building project. But then by the time Haggai is speaking to them, the project had been dormant for 16 years about which means that they started the work, but they didn't complete it. But they weren't idle during that, that time. They weren't idle because, as I said, the prophet gets right to the point. And he talks about his house, the Lord's house. The Lord's house had been neglected but they were living in panel houses. In other words, they had good housing for themselves. Where did they get it from? See, I'm surprised. It, they built it. <laughs> they provided for themselves nice places to live. And as I've said before, that was an appropriate thing to do. But what was not appropriate was for them to neglect the Lord's house. And so the problem was not that they were living in panel houses. If, even if those were of the higher quality of houses, that wasn't the problem. The problem was something else. We use the word priority. What the priorities are. And this is what the problem is. That the Lord says your priorities are misplaced. Not that you have a wrong priority in having built for yourself. It's just that it's in the wrong order. The Lord's place and his things should have been of a higher priority. You should have looked to attend to those, even if your own things didn't get done. <laughs> Do the Lord's work. That's what the idea was there. And so they talked about that. And then we see in verses 5 through 7, I'm still in chapter 1, that there were consequences to their neglect. We keep reminding ourselves that the group of people to whom the message is addressed are a special people. They are what we refer to as a covenant people, a people whom God had raised up to be his people, to be a holy nation, to be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. And so God's plan from the beginning included all the nations, but he was doing his work and focusing all of that blessing through this nation, 
And so they were supposed to be a role model. They were to be a microcosm of what everything should be. Of course, they failed in many ways. But we do understand, though, that their failure could not cause God's plan to fail. It may cause a delay in the timeline from the way we look at it and the development of, of these things. But God never fails. We fail. And there are certain contingencies that were built into the way God dealt with Israel. So that when he told them certain things, some of these blessings and these curses, these things were contingent upon what they did. And so I use the expression that God has given to us a measure of ability to make choices. And as much as he had done that, there are consequences that come with choices that we make. That's why we have to pay attention to the word of the Lord so that we can understand and make better choices, those ones which will be pleasing to him. And so some of the things that happened to them, negative things, as a consequence of their neglecting what they should have been doing, is that they didn't have adequate food, they didn't have adequate drink, they didn't have adequate clothing, they didn't have adequate wages, all these things. These were unnecessary problems that they were enduring because their priorities had been upside down, misplaced. And so there is a way for a correction. You know what that is, to get on about the Lord's business. We say repent and get on with it. And so we see in verse number 8, that they were directed to go to the mountains to get wood so that they could build a temple. So the Lord says, now, you've been upbraided. Your fault has been pointed out. And now, here is an order to you, an imperative. Go, get the materials, and build. But I want to emphasize again what I tried to emphasize before is what I refer to as a purpose clause here. Because in the midst of all of this, this what I'm calling a purpose clause in here, verse 8, it says that I, and this is the Lord, may take pleasure in it and be glorified. That the Lord may take pleasure in it and be glorified. The glory of God. His glory. And so to bring glory to God is a wonderful thing. It's a great use of our time and energies to do something that brings glory to him who is a creator, God. But you know, when we think about it, why not? Because, you see, we are able to do it. Why? Because he has enabled us to. Because he has given to us the measures of strength and health, of vitality that we have. He's given to us the abilities we have. And he said, now I've given you those for a purpose, my purpose. Don't misuse them for your purposes. 
That's what God is after and what he's up to. In verse 9, the focus returns to the reason for the troubles that the peoples were having, that people were having. They were looking for much, and they were finding little. Why was that? God says, because, speaking now, quoting God, because I blew it away. That's why. God said, I blew it away. That's why you're having that problem, that particular problem. And then he says again, my house is in ruins, verse 9, while everyone runs to his own, his own house. So you see the contrast there. God is drawing that out. He says, my house and your houses. Think about that. My house and your houses. And then in verses 10 and 11, God then tells them that the plight that they are experiencing is a result of their neglect of what they were supposed to be doing in building or rebuilding the temple. And so the heavens withdrew dew, and the earth is fruit. And they had drought on the land and the mountains, the grain, new wine, livestock, oil, their labor. All of those are negatively impacted because of a building project that was neglected. We do understand from the record that there was much opposition to them from the beginning of their efforts to rebuild. We know that. And so that's one of the things that enters into whatever happens in, in, in the exercise of the activities that God wants people, us to do, uh, people to do. And we can think about it in this sense that there is always an opponent. But that's only for a limited time, too, because there's going to come a time when the opponent is going to be put aside. And he's going to be kept there, and the opponent I'm referring to, obviously, is Satan. And then he's going to be released for a little while, and then he'll be done away with forever. But until then, the opponent continues to apply his trade, and we have to beware of that so that we're not caught and follow after what is designed for us as traps. So this lack of what they needed, the basics, it, it reflects what God said to the people way back in Deuteronomy chapter 28. Because God had laid out, not just chapter 28, but other places, 28, 29, but he, he told them specifically that if they did certain things, they will be blessed. And that if they did other things, they will be cursed, punished, judged. That's the contingency idea that I talked about. So the blessing was contingent on the, the Mosaic Code, on them doing what they were supposed to do. And God says, as long as you do that, if you obey and keep my order and follow my commands, everything will be go, go well with you. You will have welfare. You will fare well. <laughs> I 
I knew I'd bring a couple of smiles out of that. Because that's from the men's prayer meeting yesterday. <laughs> and with that expression came out like that. You know, that meeting is really a, a, such a blessing. But I'm not going to belabor that point. <laughs> but anyway, they needed to obey the Lord. And so God said, if you obey, these things will happen. If you don't, these other things will happen. And so those verses then, they point to the sovereignty of God. God is over it all, and everything is happening. He's under his control. He has a lost control when it looks like things are out of control. He has a lost control when it seems that what's going to happen or is happening is from our perspective, to say, that can't be right, can it? I mean, what he told Habakkuk just knocked him off his heels. He said, Lord, Lord how long? How long are you going to permit all this? And the Lord said to him, I have a word for you. You know those hasty, harsh, vile people? I'm going to raise them up. And they're going to wreak havoc on you. And the prophet thinking, how can this be? Sovereign God. God using those people for his ends and for his purposes. But there were contingencies there too. Because they went beyond, obviously, what God needed, what was necessary. And so they had to be punished after they had inflicted and been used as an instrument of God to inflict punishment, then they had to receive their punishment. These are the workings of God. This is the kind of God that we have. But his program never gets derailed, and that's the main thing. And so the best point then is that the idea is to be in sync with God's plan and his program. And I think we can say, we can we often talk about and how you apply these things that we are learning. Well, one, one way to think about it is just to simply the idea that if I'm in sync with what God wants, then I'm in a better place than what I would be if I'm not. If I can understand what God wants me to do and do it, I would be in a far better place. Then if I understand what it wants me to do, and I said, no, I'm not going to, and do something else. So to be in sync with God. So that's what they were, they were out of sync, and they needed to get back into sync with him. And still in chapter 1 here, in verse number 12, it tells us in verse number 12, as a result of the prophet's preaching, there was a result. Obedience. That's what it says there. He calls out Zerubbabel, the governor, or the government, governmental representative. He calls out Joshua, the high priest, the religious representative. But it doesn't stop there, it calls out the people. 
that remnant of people. They obey the voice of the Lord. They are God. See, in the ancient world, there were lots of gods with a small g, but there was only one true God, and that one was their God. He's our God, too, the same God. But they obeyed him. You know, it reminds us of the popular children's song. And it goes, it says, O-B-E-D-I-E-N-C-E. Obedience is the very best way to show that we believe. They obeyed. They made a decision. They said, we are going to do now what the Lord told us to do. We now are going to get on with it. We've neglected our duty. We let it stay off to the side, but now we're going to obey and do what we should. That's a good thing. Now, the, the Lord gives encouragement. We see that in verse number 13. So what does the Lord say to encourage them? He says, I am with you. He says, I am with you. That's important to understand. We talked about Abraham. We looked at Abraham when in chapter 12 of Genesis, God was calling Abram, who would be later Abraham, and he had a plan regarding him. But before we get to that, and so Abraham did what the Lord commanded him. I want us to consider this. In Genesis chapter 26 and verse 24, here's what the Lord said to encourage Abraham. The Lord appeared to him that night and said, I am the God of your father, Abraham. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your descendants. For the sake of my servant Abraham, that must be Isaac. <laughs> but I am with you is the point I'm trying to be with. I was with your father Abraham. I am, with, I am the God of your father Abraham, and I am with you. In 28:15, I am with you. I will protect you wherever you go. And will bring you back to this land. I will not leave until I have done what I promised you. Now consider Isaiah chapter 41 and verses 8 to 10. This uses the word Israel. So God's people Israel. He says this. But you, Israel, are my servant. Jacob, whom I have chosen, the descendants of Abraham, my friend, you whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from his farthest regions and said to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and have not cast you away. Fear not, for I am with you. 
Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you by my righteous right hand, uh, with my righteous right hand. The disciples were given a tall order, and we understand we have some responsibility in that order, too. And in chapter 28 of Matthew, in verses 19 and 20, this is what the words say. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Encouragement, how better to be encouraged than, than to focus on, to recognize, to understand, God is with me. To be encouraged. We're often discouraged, but then sometimes we reflect and we think, but God is with me. And Lord, whatever's out of order, help me to get it in order so that I can appreciate and understand the blessing of the Lord. And now in verse 14, it says that the Lord stirred up. So he stirred up the governor, he stirred up the priest, he stirred up the people. And then they came together and worked on the house of the Lord their God. So the Lord stirred them up. There's a song that has some words in it, stir me, or stir me, Lord, or something to that order. Because we are dependent upon him. We always oftentimes talk about trying to do things in what the expression we use is in our flesh as opposed to doing things in the spirit or through the power of the spirit of the Lord. As if there are some things that we can do where we don't need the Lord. We can do this. I, got, I have this. I got this. I can handle this one. I don't need the Lord for this. But the truth of the matter is we do need him all the time. And his blessings are upon us all the time. Whether we're acknowledging it or not. Because the breath that we breathe is from him. It's a gift. The food that we eat is from him. It's a gift. Everything that we have that sustains us is a gift from the Lord. So we are dependent upon him. Every person is. Whether we acknowledge it or not. So the next verse gives a date of August 15th, 520 B.C., now, that's not the way it reads in the text there, but that's the way we understand that we can appreciate what it means so that we can get an idea of the timeline here. And then we move along to chapter 2. And again, it gives a date. <clears throat> and we uh, have put that one down as October 21st of 520 B.C. And so that gives us an idea. And so it seems that there was like a three-week gap from the time they said, okay, we're going to go to ahead and do the building and 
the starting of the building project. And so we surmised that it took time to get everything assembled and ready to get back to work, to do the job. Some of us have been involved in construction work at some points in our lives. And there wasn't much you could do until the materials were already there. They had to be gathered first. And then once the materials are all in their place, then we could get about doing the thing that we were there to do. And that's the, what they had to do. They had to have the material. Well, they were told to go and get the materials to the mountains. That, that would take some time. And now in verses 2 and 3, it talks about that there were some who remembered the prior temple. And then they saw what was happening now with the building. And they could see that it was not meeting up to the measure of the old structure, building. And for some of them, that was, I could say that was kind of a discouragement to them. Ezra talks about that, that some of the people were weeping while other people were rejoicing and shouting. So some of the older people would have remembered and would have thought of this particular thing that's being done now as being something how inferior. And so in verses 4 through 9, it talks about the future, the glory, future glory of the temple. Now, one of the things that seems to me to come through is that when I look at how the temple is talked about, it's, there seems to be a continuity of temple, although they're different structures. <laughs> it's like the temple, but it's not you know, disjointed, disconnected things. It's a con there's continuity there. And so he talks about a future temple in verses 4 through 9. And then he says there, and another word of encouragement here, he says, be strong, and that's used three times, addressing each group individually, the, the, the governor, the priests, and the people, that they are to be strong, or your translation might say, take courage, or it, it might uh, say something similar to that, take heart. But the idea is there that they would be, would be encouraged uh, to get on with the work. And then again, it says, I am with you. He says that again. Then verse number four says the Lord of hosts, I am with you. I made a covenant with you, he said, and my spirit remains with you. He made a covenant with him. Now, in Exodus chapter 19, I think I read a bit of that. In chapter 19, because these people were the covenant people of God, God had a special program for them but it was designed not just for their blessing, but for blessing of the whole world. And in chapter, let's see, oh, that's the right book, but not quite to the right chapter yet. There it is. So in verse 4, Exodus 19, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. 
Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a king, a kingdom, a priest, and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel, a high calling for them. So he said to them, my spirit remains with you. That's important. Because in the context here, the people obviously have been in disobedience. They have been neglectful. But the Lord says, but I am still with you. My spirit remains. I haven't given up on you. You did the wrong thing. Now get it right and do the right thing. That's what he's saying to them as a people. And so he made that covenant with them. And so they can think about it in this way, that, oh, that now we're being reminded of the faithfulness of God. As if we could ever doubt his faithfulness. But in times of downness and depression and disorientation, it just kind of sometimes feels like it feels like is the Lord still is he still is he still doing what he said he would do is he still with me has he given up on me is he done with me but he said my spirit remains among you do not fear the greatest reason to not have fear is to know that the Lord is with you you know we sometimes think about how with parents and their little children. And sometimes something can happen and the little child gets frightened. And what do they do? They run and jump into the parents' arms. And they're comforted. God says, I'm your God. I'm with you. My spirit is among you. Don't fear. You don't have to do that. And now verse 6. It says, in a little while, and I'm going to talk a little bit quickly here about this part, and then we'll come back there. But it talks about it in a little while. So, uh, so what is that? There are ways to misunderstand it. It's, it's not that it's going to be a short little time span necessarily, but by the way that the language is used. But the idea of, of imminency uh, or an impending thing, there. So he says, for in, a little, for in a little while, I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations. And I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. And then he says, the silver is mine, and the gold is mine. And he says in verse 9, the glory of this temple shall be greater than the former in this place. I will give peace, uh, says the Lord. So just a couple of things here. So this section is speaking future. We can understand from the text here that what he's talking about is, is something in the future. It hasn't happened yet. So I will shake those nations, but that's speaking about a judgment that God is going to bring. And then he says about the peace. Well, that's a future thing too. 
So these things are place future. And we often talk about what's going to happen at the end in the timeline that God has. And so we are now, we would say the next great event in the prophetic calendar is something we call the rapture. But after that event, when God lifts out those who are the believers out of the earth, there are people left. And there will be a tribulation period. We call that the great tribulation. Distinguishing it from other tribulations, because there were lots of them, and some of them were quite major. I read a book when I was in Virginia, and the man had a lot of good points in there, but then he stumbled on this point because he looked at the tribulations of various ones, and he said, well, he couldn't understand how we could take the position that we have, that this great tribulation is a separate entity in which the believers are not participants. But we see it that way. That's the way we teach here. But, and then there's a millennial reign, 1,000 years, Lord reigning upon the earth. And we, he has others reigning with him. The, the, the disciples, you know, they were concerned about what their positions were going to be in this new kingdom. I, I'm well over. Okay, I have to stop. But, uh, and so they were concerned about what they were going to do. And the Lord said, well, you're going to be over, you know, the tribes. You're going to have administrative posts in the millennial kingdom. But then the saints will reign with him as well. That, those are future things. So this section is talking about future things. And, and so I just want to kind of taper it off there and come back to that section and then move through. And so what I'm going to attempt to do is, is, is to move on and finish our study in this section in the next two sessions. We'll see how that goes. <laughs> anyway, let's pray. Dear Lord, it is a blessing, and we thank you that you have permitted us the privilege this morning to have the word of the Lord and to consider it. Help us to honor the Lord through the word of God. We pray in the name of Christ, let's say with thanks. Amen.